Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And welcome back to the House of Pod. My name is Kave. I hope I'm saying that correctly. I will be your host today. And joining me on this episode about food is my my dear friend. I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say best friend. I don't know if he's going to agree with this. I'm feeling a little vulnerable right now because I'm putting it out there and we've never had this discussion. So I'm, I'm feeling a little nervous about this. Wei Lu, Dr. Wei Lu, radiologist bandmate, longtime friend. Way, welcome back to the show. Yeah, I I probably I I I do have many good friends, but I would I would put you on the Mount Rushmore of best friends. Mm-hmm. In particular, um if you look at the influence you have had on my life, uh number one, the person I am married to currently Mm-hmm. Uh, you me? Did, yeah. Oh, I introduced you. Okay, good. Yeah. I was uh, for a second. I didn't know where you're going. Yes, I introduced yes. you to your wife. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and when she broke up with me, you convinced her to get back together with me. Um. No, that's cool. That's cool. I'm uh, on your Mount Rushmore, and you're my best friend. That's fantastic. No, that's <laughs> that's totally cool. Cool. I am very happy that you're back on the show uh, you've been on a couple of times and I'm glad you're going to be here to to talk to Dan Adut with me. Dan uh is a writer, a comedian and I and he has this book that we you read it, right? Yeah. Um actually I listened Undercooked. to Undercooked. Yes, I I listened to the audiobook, which I think uh I would actually I I don't usually do that, um but I wanted to give it a try because he said that he had um, and he he was doing it with his own voice, 
mm-hmm. and I had heard him a few times doing stand up, and uh, he 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 does sort of like character voices and accents, and so that that kind of added a an extra level to yeah uh, the whole experience. Yeah, his his Persian accents of like his like the Persian ones is pretty fantastic. <laughs> I'm excited to talk to him. You know, uh, before we go, did you notice I have a tan? Yes, a tan for you is like is like baseline for me. <laughs> for I am tan now. Uh, that doesn't happen very very much. This weekend, the family we went to wine country, Napa wine oh, country, nice. and, and it might be the bougiest thing about me that on the down low. I fucking love going to spas. Like, it's not a maybe. It's like definitely the most bougie thing about me. Like the first time I went, uh, my wife like basically made me. She was like, "Let's go do this spa thing." And I, I didn't understand the concept of it. I don't like strangers touching me or getting weird massages. It's not my thing. So like, I was not comfortable with it at all. But I fell in love with the place. Oh my God. It's like the food is great. The wine is great. There's like these mineral baths. Have you been? I've done. I mean, I've gone and I've sat in, not exactly sat. I soaked my feet in the mineral water, uh, but I've never done any of the, uh, the actual spa treatments. What what was your, your favorite? Did you do like the mud thing? Did you do the massage? No, I, I don't, I don't, you know, the only time in my life I've ever gotten a massage it was when you and I were in Vietnam. I don't like getting massages. I don't like strangers touching me. <laughs> like, I don't, I mean, like, cause like the, I tried to go in for the massage and I'm like, and I'm like, my brain's like, okay, don't, don't fart. Don't fart. Don't fart. Don't fart. Don't fart. Don't fart. Don't get an erection. Don't fart. Don't get an erection. Don't fart. And like, that's my head the whole time. And I'm, so I'm not relaxed. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, I, I actually have a story about like uncomfortable. Have you been to a, a, a Korean massage place no like, no i told you i've only stuff. been to one massage yeah. and that was with you in vietnam that was the only time well it's it's not really a massage place it's like um what do they call it a bathhouse and they do like these scrubs and um and what i didn't realize is like you, you're totally you're totally nude that's um when you go into the, like the bath side of things so i went i went in and i was like okay i want to get a scrub everybody says it's great so i i got a ticket and so i i go down and there's like they're like handed to that guy sitting on that chair over there. And so there was like a whole bunch of guys sitting on the chair. So I was like, okay, well, I pulled out the ticket and, and this guy just gets up and he like grabs it. And I'm like, all right, so that's the right guy. And then we get into the bath area and they start, he's like, taking off your clothes. He's like, take off your clothes. So I take off my clothes. And then what was really weird was he starts taking off his clothes. And I was just like, I was like, oh, wait, 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 just wait, this, this not, no. No, what did and and he's like no 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 you're this is like this is this how it's he had it took him like five ten minutes to like really explain to me that this is this is like how it's done that hmm. that when you get into the bath section you it's I think for sanitary reasons you have to be nude or so he says it, it, mm, <laughs> is it yeah I don't know but I mean he did his job it was great. But uh, it was just like I, that. I had that moment of like, oh man, this is. I don't know if I told you this at the time, but when we were getting our massages in Vietnam, uh, like I said, my the two overriding fears I had in my head were to you know not like let a fart rip, and then the <laughs> other one was I'm like, 
I was a little nervous. I don't know why. I didn't I didn't know why it would happen. I never had a massage before, but I was like, I don't want to to get an erection like during the massage. <laughs> right. Because I, I, I was I was afraid it might get triggered because I don't know. I'd never been to a massage. I never had a massage before. I didn't know how they worked. Um, and so I, I was getting a massage, but because it was so uncomfortable, I mean, I wasn't like in a really comfortable place. I don't think that would have ever been a problem anyways. Um, but I got the feeling at one point that the masseuse was almost annoyed that I wasn't getting one because she <laughs> was really working my thighs, like my inner thighs, working that area, like everything around my junk, like working it really like hard. And then I was like, oh no, am I supposed to get one? Is that like what happens in a massage? Is that like, if you don't get one, that like they're offended? And then it's I was like- like not worried. giving a tip. Yeah, then I was like worried. <laughs> then I was like worried that I was offending the person by not getting one. So, I mean, you you can see why they're not fun for me, right? Like there's yeah, too much just going like too much uh, going on in your yeah, head. Yeah, exactly. Then you can't really enjoy the actual process. That's exactly right. Uh anyways, speaking of enjoying the process, I I think you will people will really enjoy this uh interview that we have uh with Dan coming up. If you haven't already, please rate and review this podcast at iTunes. I read the reviews when you do. Uh let me read you the most recent one that we got. It's titled LOL, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. I'm in the middle of the latest episode, but I was laughing so hard, it was probably not safe for me to drive. Don't worry, I'm home now. Always good to learn a little something and laugh. By TB15ND. That's very, very sweet. I'm glad I could almost cause you to have a car accident. You know, if I were to find out like someone died listening to the show, that would <laughs> really affect yeah, that me. Would... That would really... <laughs> would really put a damper on all my fun shenanigans with this show so tone it down yeah don't don't do that uh so thank you so much for that review uh if you want to leave a review i would love to read it on air so please do that anyways uh thanks to nadine for help production stay tuned for dana dudes And welcome back. Oh my God, I'm so excited. Uh, we have today writer, comedian, actor. You've seen him on The Tonight Show. You've seen him on his show, Raid the Fridge, Bajillion Dollar Properties, the Netflix series, Cobra Kai, Workaholics. Uh, he's been on so many shows. You've seen, you know who he is. You've seen him. You know who he is. Um, but he's here today to talk to us about his new book, Undercooked How I Let Food Become My Life Navigator. And maybe why that's a dumb way to live. Actually, did I get that right? Yeah. uh, uh, How I Let Food Become My Life Navigator and how maybe that's a dumb way to live. Yeah. Fantastic book. Man, uh, Wayne and I both were just talking about how much we enjoyed this book. And uh, really do recommend it. You know, I I Kava, Kava, before you go in, you never said my name. God, you're right. All my great credits. I will say say this. We We did talk about you in our little intro segment. But Dan Adute, ladies and gentlemen, Dan Adute. Thank you. I need, you know, as a stand-up comedian, I need to, you need to pass the mic. You got to say, Here. welcome Dan Adute. And then I, and then I know it's time to go. I am nothing but a hack and a fraud with this, <laughs> this microphone in front of me. I, I have no idea what I'm doing, Dan. That should be clear by now, I hope. 
honestly, uh, you know, there's so many reasons I wanted to have you on, but but one thing about this book and uh, is that you know it's resonated with me a lot. You think about food a lot. I do too. Um, I know a lot of people out there probably do as well. Uh, and maybe they have mixed emotions about sharing it. I think it's a good thing to talk about. It's mm-hmm. it's super funny, heartfelt book. The way you discuss food, um, in the the way that you know you write about food, it, it's like the kind of writing that makes you like hungry. It's like you your love for this thing is really infectious, and I really I really enjoyed it. But before we get into it, before we get into the book, before we get mm-hmm. into any of that stuff, the the first thing I want to discuss with you is. So you were accepted to Cornell Medical School. Uh, is that that's correct, right? Yes, yes. So can we go into it a little bit? How close a call was this? Was this like were you teetering back and forth about whether or not you should do it? Was this was it pretty clear? Like how did that decision come to be? I think my whole uh, lo- my whole adult or young adult life was teetering on whether or not I wanted to do this. Um, and then once I got in, it was like, oh God, it's time to make to make that decision. Um, throughout college, I, you know, I was good at science. I was good at math. Uh, I enjoyed it. I did all the right research projects. Um, you know, I uh, studied endothelial sca- cells <laughs> at, uh, yeah. at the Hemonk department <laughs> um, at Cornell in Manhattan. And I mean, I did all the right things and I got into the school and I, you know, um, but it was never something that I really loved to do. I mean, I like to do it, but I didn't love doing it. And I loved comedy. And I know that it sounds delusional to say that. And, and, or it's delusional to, to choose comedy over medicine, especially when you go that far into it. Um, and it's funny whenever, Whenever people ask me, like, were your parents supportive? I'm like, yeah, of course they were. They were amazing. Like, they were so sweet about it. And they're like, really? I'm like, fuck no. Are you kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly my mind. I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, oh, that's so awful. And I, it's funny. I've got, I've had a conversation with Maz about this and, and we disagree on this, but I don't think that parents should be supportive when their kid says, I want to be a comedian. And I think if, lacking all the support from your family you still go and do it and you still have to do it then that's the only reason you should try to go into comedy or acting or whatever because it's a dumb profession it's very easy to fail at it's very very easy to fail at um luckily i didn't but it's you know it's one of those things where it was a real struggle to figure out that i wanted to do it then it was a real struggle doing it because no one supported me and you know i have no family in entertainment like i had no hookups or anything like that yeah um, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, and then shortly after, you know, Obamacare happened and now I'm very happy with my decision. <laughs> I see my poor friends have turned into <laughs> all they do is try to chase down insurance money all day long. My doctor buddies. I, I am. I am so happy for you. I mean, uh, I know that must have been a, a challenging time just for nothing else that discussion you must have had with your your parents that must have been a challenging time but you know the thing of it is uh i do think it's super important that you that people do check themselves at some point to see if it's really what they want to do i mean mm-hmm. way and i know so many doctors who are not happy being doctors and i'm not even talking about because of how bad the last couple of years have been which is a whole separate topic but even before that you know there's so many like hoops you have to go through as, as a pre med and to get into medical school, there's so many hurdles you have to go through that 
you just sometimes have to put your head down and run through brick wall after brick wall until you get there. And nobody stops to think about it. Because then if they right. do, then they sink and they they're done. They don't they can never get this all this work accomplished that they need to. So there's there's a lot of people who just go through it, never stop to think, actually, should I do this? Do I want to do this? So the the fact that you at least had that moment is I think really important. Well, and I think now I, I read an article recently <clears throat> about how it's probably getting what you're talking about that stopping and thinking is probably happening less and less because everyone's on Adderall now and Adderall is <laughs> very good at just focusing you on the task at hand, but it's not a good at giving you a macro view of, wait, is this what I want to be focusing on? Yeah. Um, and yes, I do. I agree with you. I think it's very important to check yourself. And I, all my doctor friends, are very are pretty happy being that they became doctors but i do have a couple who are also miserable and by the way i think that's the case with any profession yeah i i know i i know people who are comedians who are miserable because it's not what they want to do um so it's like you know it's the old adage find your passion which is so cliche but at least find something that you like to do you yeah. know what i mean it's like it, which is easier said than done i know but um even within within whatever you're doing within your profession if you find what you do um you know like you guys are podcasting as doctors and so you get that outlet out of of communicating and of meeting people and you know so that's that's like a cool side hustle that you figured out that you i'm assuming enjoyed you know doing yeah yeah, yeah one, one um inherent property of being in medicine is that uh, it's inherently boring in that you, the the goal is to get so good at it that that you know the most common cases are are boring. Um, like you don't want to be that interesting case that we see, right? Because that that means it's you know it's something we we need to investigate further. Or we don't know anything about. Uh, and so yeah, this having doing this podcast and also the the band that uh, Kavi and I were in were very helpful in getting sort of a little bit more interesting aspects into our life. Yeah. Um, I, look, I uh, I just broke my ankle. I'm in the boot right now. And, oh, uh, no. What happened? Um, I was skiing and I just messed it up. Yeah. Um, but I'm in the boot and I went to my ortho five weeks ago. And, you know, there were people as I was as I was there, there were on on my crutches. There were people coming in who were just walking in the boot with no crutches, you know, and uh, I went and saw the doctor and he did the old like, okay, x-ray says this, put the boot on for five weeks, come back, and then we'll take another x-ray. I'm like, okay. And then I came back five weeks later, then I was the person walking in the boot without crutches. And then there was someone else there in a boot with crutches. And I'm like, oh my God, this must get so boring for these doctors. <laughs> All they do is tell these people, yep, okay, get in the boot for five weeks yeah. and answer the same dumb questions that we all have, you know, yeah. and, and, and you must, you must go crazy. The dumb questions that we ask as patients, like must drive you people crazy. And to, to be able to just with a straight face, just be like, yeah, no, this is totally, <laughs> there's no, there's no such thing as a dumb question. <laughs> like that was a dumb question. No, honestly, what I think a big part of it for me, there's two things. One part of it is I, I think a big part of being happy in medicine is being yourself. Like when I first started being a doctor, like I had my regular voice. I talked to people like my friends, like you, I would talk to, or right. then I had my voice. I would talk to patients with. Now I don't do that. I don't really code switch in that way. 
I talk to my patients like they're normal people, like I would talk mm -hmm. to them. So I'll make jokes. I'll, you know, if I, if I feel it's appropriate at least, and I'll, I'll have an honest conversation with them and be like, that was a bad question as a joke. And then we'll have like a little laugh, you know, or we'll, we'll be able to have like real moments and it makes me a lot happier. The other thing that I remind myself of is that not everyone has the talent to do what you do. Like, but I, I still like to live vicariously through people like you who are like, were able to make that decision, that challenge and had the talent to do it, you know? Right. Well, um, I am extremely, extremely lucky and extremely blessed, you know, platitudes, platitudes, all the things I'm supposed to say. But yeah. I will also say that I think that being pre-med, especially pre-med at Hopkins, gave me a work ethic that I took to this. And, you know, they say, you know, you say, oh, point. 0.01% of people who go into comedy can actually end up making a living at it. Yeah. Have you seen most of the people who go into comedy? I mean, <laughs> just right off the bat, 90% of them just need yeah. to be scraped off the top. I mean, no one has the work ethic. A lot of people are just completely delusional. Um, if you're going into comedy and you actually have, you know, you need to have some talent, obviously, but if you have hard work hard work goes a real long way um yeah, yeah so and i and i do you know i thank my hopkins pre-medding for for that work ethic um but yeah it's uh it's i'm 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 very lucky but you know here's the other dirty little secret at the end of the day it's still a fucking job like yeah. i'm excited when i am done with work i mean especially writing a book so stand up is one thing stand up is delightful i mean you feel awful the whole day before you go on stage, you just have, mm -hmm. or at least I do, uh, no matter how long I've done it for. But then once I'm on stage, I'm I'm in heaven, I'm flying, and I get off and I feel great and it's awesome. Writing how long? How long into your performance is it like right away, or is it like a, you need to warm up into your performance? First is laugh. It that first laugh. Oh yeah. First laugh. First laugh, and then you're, and then it's the best feeling in the world. Um, writing a book is the worst fucking thing I've ever done in my life. It's <laughs> awful. <laughs> But you I seem mean, to be very good at it. I mean, this book is amazing. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. But it's just like, it's just sitting down and forcing yourself to just like, it's just so solitary and you have no idea how it's going to be. With stand-up, you know, you're getting instant gratification. You know right away if people like it or not. But, um, you know, you're getting data. You're getting real-time data. But when you're writing a book, you have no fucking clue until the book goes out and then you just hope for the best. You know, you've been writing for a year. You have no idea how it's going to land on anyone. Yeah. So it's really a frustrating process. But, you know, at the end, extremely gratifying. Well, let's let's start talking about the book. Um, it, it's really about your relationship to food. And uh, that's something I think about a lot because, I, you know, I was asking myself recently, I was like, do I have a healthy relationship with food? And I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> do I, I, I realized this because I was like, the other day, I actually felt something I haven't felt in a long time, which was hunger. Like, I was like, what is this sensation I'm feeling right now? I'm like, this is, because I just don't, I don't eat when I'm hungry. You know, I just eat when it's like time to eat. I don't right. stop eating when I'm full. I like, eat until the food runs out or my wife is giving me like bad looks, you know, I like that's the kind of relationship I have with food. Like where I'm like, I'm the guy eating, thinking about his next meal as he's eating, you know, 
Like, so I was like, I don't think that's really all that, that healthy, but your, 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 your book, you talk about sort of the pluses and minuses of it. You talk about like the, the good and bad parts of your relationship with food. It's been a big part of your like family. It's been a big part of, of your life story, but would you say that you have a, a healthy relationship with food? I mean, so here's the thing. When people listen to hear healthy relationship to food, they automatically assume you're talking about overeating or undereating. And that is not at all what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a like obsession with restaurants and obsession with learning how to cook and ex- an obsession with getting the best ingredients, even if that means learning how to fire a gun and going out hunting. Um, you know, that food, food became sort of my identity. Um, and I think that just chasing that high can be unhealthy, uh, in a big way. And, you know, I think more and more people are falling into that trap, especially now that they have social media and now everyone's becoming fucking Anthony Bourdain, um, (laughs) with their food, you know, with their food picks and whatnot. Um, but you know, look, I think I still obviously love food a lot. I love going to restaurants a lot. Um, uh, as long as it doesn't get in the way of my my personal relationships and whatnot, I think it's actually it's it can be a great thing. You're um, right about that in your book. You're right about it getting into the way of your personal relationships. Is that in a very vulnerable way, which I appreciated? Like, was that? I'm assuming that was probably a challenging part of writing this book. Yeah, that part sucked. I mean, I did not like. <laughs> I I definitely put off the chapters that were harder to write. Uh, to the end um and then you know like they're mostly about relationships and whatnot but um i basically just powered through i just put my head down and wrote as much as i could and would just like be crying and writing (laughs) and just getting it done and then the key is also is like you know as a comic like you still want to add funny you know like i the book to me is interesting because it's not a comedy book but it's also not like a serious book like I feel like it toes the line pretty well of like being a comedic food memoir that also has a lot of heart and vulnerability without being too fucking, you know, lame. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, it's it's it does. It yeah, it's really heartfelt and I love that. Well, a big part of that is you talking about your brother, um your older brother who passed away and how big of a uh, a part he played in your life story and this relationship you have with food. You also mentioned that you were kind of thinking about going into oncology or you're doing oncology research. I'm, I'm assuming that's because he had cancer. Is that correct? Yeah. My brother had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So he had blood cancer and I ended up, we were mentioning before the podcast, I did uh, um, endothelial uh, cell research at, at Cornell in, in the city, in New York city uh, for like three summers um, in between, you know, during college. So yeah, I mean, it, it, it made me, I definitely, you know, dipped my toe into that world. But then also my brother dying made me realize that life is short and you got to do what you want to do. And endothelial cell research wasn't it for me, you know? Yeah. Um, as much as I love pontificating on on VEGF, V-E-G-F, mm. and yeah. other yeah. growth hormones, <laughs> and yeah. EPO. Oh, that uh, EPO, baby. Mm, it's the good stuff. <laughs> yeah. That's the good so, stuff. <laughs> this book is, um, I mean, what I found is it, it's, amazingly introspective i think in terms of like food culture this is like the next evolution like everything right now is so much outwardly but this is kind of like 
I think everybody needs to read something like this where they they sort of analyze their relationship with with food. Um, did you was it was it a sudden realization or did you sort of realize that over time that the the connection with your with food and your relationships? Um, I think I realized it over time. You know, I realized something wasn't working and you know, uh, why did I stay in that relationship with the chef who wasn't necessarily the right person for me for so long? Well, because she was a fucking great chef. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> why did I break up with that person who was perfect for me but had food allergies? Well, because she had food allergies. I mean, it's, uh, you know, after a while you start adding the pieces together and you realize, oh, shit, this isn't good. In fact, I didn't, I, I'll tell you, when I started to write the book, um, it wasn't, I I don't know that I I didn't have it all mapped out um and I didn't I knew that I was obsessed with food because my after my brother died I kind of lost this food relationship that I had with my dad cuz he became kosher and so I I you know rebellious 16 year old just decided to to go you know and go knee deep into food as much as I could to to reget to regain that relationship so but i didn't really I, I never connected it to my modern life or to where i was in life until i started writing the book and then you know it just became this kind of big therapy session which um funny enough you guys were asking about the audiobook before um i i i recorded the audiobook myself and it was over two days from 8 a.m to 5 p.m where you're in a sound booth um, and just like reading this book and I'm, I'm reading like some of like my deepest, darkest secrets that I should be sharing only with a therapist who's got like, hiring, <laughs> you know, who can listen to it empathically. But instead it was just like on the other side of the, of the, you know, soundproof glass was like some spectrum sound engineer. <laughs> <laughs> It was just like, um, excuse me, Dan, I think you're crying. Can you stop oh, crying? No. Can you stop crying? Because we hear it on the mic. I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, I'm sorry. Let me take it again. Would you would you have to read your would you have to read your writing? Are there any points where you're like, God damn it, why did I write this? Or what I wish I didn't write it like this, or like you're like, I don't like the way this sounds. Does that ever happen? Like, because I can't imagine being confronted to actually read out loud the shit I've written in the past. Yeah, I wouldn't were... listen to the stuff I've said on the podcast, much less written, you know. I will say there was it, there were a couple things that reading it out loud, I was like, that's kind of cheesy. Why did I why did I write that? But not so much because I feel like after you write it, um, you go over it like 30 times before, you know, in drafts mm -hmm. before it finally gets, you know, written in stone. But, you know, talk to me in a couple of years. That's I think the true test is like David Sedaris is like five years after anything I write. I'm like, that was the biggest piece of garbage I wrote. But <laughs> But yeah. as of now, it is not garbage, listeners. Please, no, it's not. I, and I think, I think it actually, the timing of the book is really good. Like Wei was saying too, it's a really. I think it's hitting at the right time. It's interesting to me because you talk about this in the book a lot. Your relationship with hunting as well, like being a hunter with kind of a gatherer vibe, you know. And and you, what's interesting is that I think that is still kind of weird for some people. The concept of like this Hollywood, you know leftist whatever i don't know if you are but like relatively progressive dude like out there shooting guns and, and knowing about gun culture and stuff i think that's weird for some people but i think 
it's not as weird as it used to be. There is a lot of progressive people out there that are very much into gun culture. And there is a lot of people that are far on the left that are, are into guns as well. I think the, the concept of guns and hunting being solely a uh, MAGA thing, I think that's changing. I think people are starting to understand how that could be for more Americans than just that small group, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, there's two things you're talking about. You're talking about guns for hunting and then guns for, you know, self-defense. Yeah. Um, and I think so guns for hunting. I Michael Pollan, who wrote The Omnivore's Dilemma in the early 2000s, I think he started this transition of, wait, if we're foodies and we're OK eating meat, how are we not? How are we so averse to killing it? And that wasn't really a thought. Um in let's call it progressive psyches or in foodie world psyches you know hunting was just something that was a very like red state you know kind of a pastime um that was passed down from generation to generation and looked down upon and i think that he kind of opened that door um a little bit it's at the point now where if you put in for a lottery or to, to get a tag to go kill an elk in new mexico your chances of getting one from out of state have become so little just because everyone is hunting now. Hunting has become so huge in the country. And I think, you know, for good reason. I mean, it sucks for me because I could before go hunting whenever I wanted, but now it's like, you got to wait your turn. Um, but I, I don't, I have a... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Tough time ever. I don't think I've ever heard an argument against hunting from a non-vegan mm -hmm. or from a non-vegetarian that's made any shred of sense to me. Um, yeah. It just seems, you know... Uh, there's no food that anyone is eating in a supermarket that was given a better life than something that was roaming out, you know, in the, yeah. in the woods or in the forest. And, um, and also in terms of culturally, people are like, Oh, well, hunters are just, it's so gross that bloodlust to kill an animal. Hunters give more money to conservation through the purchase of their license and through their ammo. than almost all environmental groups combined. Mm 
um which is a yeah go ahead no absolutely absolutely and uh i i see that i think the the next frontier of discussion on it is these pictures that people take when they're like they've hunted a giraffe and they're like right. lying next to a giraffe or a lion you know what i'm saying like um those things to me still feel weird i i could see someone making an argument to be like well why do you care if they do that versus uh, a deer if they're done under the same sort of regulations but one i doubt that they are and and two it does seem different to me to go to another country and kill like these like these animals that sh that we normally keep in zoos for a particular reason because they're like these amazing animals that we don't get to see enough of you know but that is a very funny way to look at it. you're like these animals should be locked up for us to enjoy <laughs> not, <laughs> not not yeah, roaming exactly. the Serengeti. <laughs> yeah you're right right but i mean like I mean that that I think is still weird. How do you feel about people like shooting like a giraffe? Yeah, like trophy hunting. So like yeah. um even that in a weird way has a little bit of nuance in it. Now I would never I mean this is a, a, a sort of an unnecessary disclaimer, but like there's no way in I I would never ever want to kill a big cat or you know like a lion or a, like that stuff to me is is pretty gross like especially since their numbers are not like the strongest yeah. in you know in the animal kingdom um and and they're probably not eating the fucking lion meat cuz it's probably gross yeah. but um you know what what a lot of people don't know is that all of those hunts in Africa where you're getting some sort of weird rare animal um uh, you have to pay like upwards of a million dollars to do that. And most of that money will end up going to conservation um, mm. of those of those lands. Now, I think it's a weird kink to want to kill a rhino. I don't fucking yeah. get it. Um, to especially I, I can think of many things that are better to spell, spend a million dollars on. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there is that other side of it. Mind you, I don't know what the bureaucracy is like in Africa with those. I'm sure a lot of it gets you know, but there is an argument. To, that's the argument that they make for it. So, like, again, is it something that I but it is the optics of it are just so awful that I don't yeah. quite I can't imagine it being worth the, you know, whatever positive there is to it. Like it just and then the then the negative thing is that every hunter gets pulled into that, you know, that same mm -hmm same thing like you're suddenly all don jr because because <laughs> you hunt a deer <laughs> yeah no i i get it there's a lot of these paradoxes that you talk about in the book i i appreciate and something i really appreciate obviously is you start to introduce a lot of the paradoxes of persian culture you're a great example of it like because on one hand you're like well i ended up playing this awful role because I didn't want to like insult producers <laughs> and I didn't want to like, because there's that Persian part of you that's like, no, they offered me this thing. They they built this whole set. I have to do this ridiculous role, falafel fill, which I find to be offensive and racist and all, but I have to do it because like they did it. They built it. I can't like say no now. That would be rude. But on the other hand, you returned a dish to the world's, literally the world's best restaurant. You returned a dish which I think a lot of people would be like, how could you do that? How could you, how could you have the, how could you be so poru? How could you do it? The chutzpah to do it. Um, 
how do you explain these paradoxes? Uh, this this <laughs> Persian paradox that is Dana dude. Okay, that is that is the best question that I've gotten since doing this book tour, picking those two things, because that's the most Persian thing, both of those things. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> I'll tell you, my Persianness <clears throat> has definitely not helped in my career because <laughs> Persians are just like, nah, just be polite, do what you want, do what they want, you know, be nice, don't make too much noise, you know, you want to be grateful that they're even doing this. Um, and, you know, it's always like minimize your accomplishments, you know, be very humble. And Americans are like, ask what you fucking want. Get it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like and fake it till you make it right. Tell everyone you're doing way more than you're actually doing. And I think in entertainment, both of those things do work. I think there is something about like standing your ground and like asking for what you want and getting it. And I think that's definitely hurt me Persian wise. But then you bring it to the returning the meal at Osteria Franciscana, the number one restaurant in the world. Persians also know the value of a good deal and they know the value of like getting their money's worth. All right. And I think nothing kills a person <laughs> than if someone's scamming them out of money. So I was like, fuck these Italians. I'm getting my money's worth. <laughs> I was literally laughing out loud listening to that that part of the book. It's a, it's amazing. I highly again, it's worth reading for that story alone. The basic premise of it was they served you this risotto dish where the risotto <clears throat> was undercooked, at least in your estimation, right? Now, looking back on it or finding out later, way, uh, way, hold on, way. Did you hear how he said at least in your estimation? Like, like, <laughs> like, as if, uh, it's well, like, like. <laughs> What, is he like this? Is he like this? He throws these little digs. Yes, yeah. No, but yeah. awful person. Yeah, it awful. was my estimate. That, it that's was my... his Persianness to Listen, be polite. I'm yeah. just trying to say what's no, no. Honestly, my question. I I was equally horrified and proud of, of you when I was hearing this story, um, because I can't return things to like a Chili's if it's like bad. The the steak could come like bleeding raw, and I could have asked for well done, and I won't. I'll be like, no, it's fine. It's got the really. I'll get the wrong oh. dish, but that's because I'm so like, I get, I also don't want them spitting in my food. Uh, I know if you go to a fancy restaurant like this, like this high end restaurant, that won't happen or it shouldn't. But like, uh, there's a, there's a part of me that really appreciates that you did that a big part of me. But my question is though, was it, how did they mess it up so much? Was it just that that was a style and it sucked or did they just make a, 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 a mistake and undercook it? Okay, so there's a couple of things there that, that you threw out. So let's take them one at a time. Yeah. Number one, the risotto. The only reason why I'm pretty certain that it was objectively undercooked is because um, it was grainy and gritty in my teeth. And there's like, yeah, there's al dente with risotto, not so much, but there is al dente. This was far, you know, uh, prior to al dente. And my uh, fiance at the time, who is a very, very great chef, she agreed with me without me even saying something. I Because I felt it yeah. and I didn't want to ruin her meal. So I was like, I'm not going to say anything. And right away she was like, I think this is undercooked. And so the only assumption I can make is that they found out the night before that they were the number one restaurant in the world. We were the first service after they found that out. So we were a lunch service the next day. I'm assuming these fuckers were out partying oh, till right. six in the morning. That, that makes sense. Yeah. 
And then they had to go back to the restaurant, <laughs> bleary-eyed, hungover. Right, and they, right. you know, they phoned in the risotto. <laughs> that is, that is, uh, that makes total sense. And by the way, I defer to your opinion. You are much more a master of the culinary arts <laughs> than I will ever assume to be. So I, I, uh, I, I'm sure you are correct. I'm sure you. Wait, are but I will also say, Kava, I think you need to. I, and this is also a little uh, campaign uh, that I'm on, a, a crusade that I'm on. <clears throat> is that people should be more comfortable returning food at a restaurant when it's not prepared correctly. And trust me, most restaurants, even at Chili, they want you to have the best experience of the food. Um, they want you to really enjoy what you're having. Um, and this is where you can bring your Persianness in, uh, is that you have this politeness about you. There's a Persian politeness that we are we have in our blood. As long as you're really nice about it and you're not a dick about it, right. I've never had an experience very rarely, except for at the number one restaurant in the world, where <laughs> it's gone weird or it's gone wrong. It's always been pretty cool. Another thing that I've been doing lately, which has been like, it, it, if I don't like something that was prepared well or is prepared well, but it just doesn't, it tastes off to me or I'm just not into it. I will say something along the lines of, hey, listen, this dish is prepared fine. I'm not enjoying it. So I will pay for it, but can I get something else instead? Mm -hmm. Nine times out of 10, they take it off the bill anyway. Um, mm -hmm. So there's ways to do it that I think are not being a dick. And, you know, I think there's this thing about people spitting in food, which is like, I, I can't, I've had so many people on my podcast who work in the restaurant industry. No one has, and friends, like no one has, no one does that. Like, mm. I, I don't think it's a, it's a, it's a rational fear. Um, it's sort of like a thing that happened in movies that everyone's sort of like in the yeah. back of our heads. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. I mean, the professional it's like having a fear. It's like having a it's like having a fear of flying. Like, yeah, sure. Once in a while, a plane goes down, but <laughs> it's like I so, never want to go on a plane. We, we actually had a pilot on because I'm fear of flying. That's a whole other episode that we did. Um, you know, but sticking to the the Persianness of it all, your the chapter where you talk about uh, Persian food. By the way, I was waiting for that chapter. I'm like, I'm like, when's this fucking guy gonna get to the Persian? If he doesn't talk about Persian food, I'm gonna be really pissed off. If he goes through like all this French food, Italian food, it doesn't get to the. But the the, the chapter on the Persian food is so good, and there was so many great lines. There's one I want to read. So I want to share. Food in our family is more than just sustenance. It holds memories, joy, pain, family heritage, and heritage lost. There's a really poignant line. I thought it was really beautiful. And it really, what's interesting is, you know, there is this uh, love in, in Persian food. There is that a, a big expression of our love in our family. <laughs> and, and for many of us Iranians in the United States, you <laughs> mentioned this, it's our one connection to Iran. You know, we don't, I don't speak the language particularly well, a little bit. Um, you know, I I don't have any intention to go back there and visit, you know, at least not in the, any time in the near future. And the food is really the thing that connects us. And it is, it makes me a little sad because, you know, um, as you mentioned, a lot of that, that cooking, we're, we're losing it. Like I do a lot of cooking at home. I do a lot of cooking at home, but I cook mostly Italian food um, or like American food. I don't make a lot of Persian food. And, I actually and make more Persian food than you at, in my house. Absolutely does. He actually makes great Persian food. Uh, Amazing. Wayne, Wayne knows more about Persian I, food than yeah, probably I, either of us. My favorite point. cuisine. Really? Yeah. Wait, wait, what's, what's your ethnicity? 
I'm Chinese. Um, what part? North, south? Um, actually, it's it's a little bit interesting. The the western part of China where the Uyghurs are. Yeah. I um, probably shouldn't be saying that. I'm going to be put in a, <laughs> I know. a, a camp at this <laughs> point. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. It's been a nice podcast, yeah. guys. Uh, um, but I, I think He's got to sell books in China, Wei. Shut up. Right. <laughs> I, I think that's part of my connection to, like, uh, I, I don't know, the Middle East. Um, uh, all my, I, I would say the majority. Of my he has a fetish, Dan. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that clear? Yeah. Like, you I'm just what? here to fill it's a role. About, it's about time. I know so many Persians who have Asian fetishes. Finally, an Asian right. has a Persian <laughs> well, fetish. I, I feel That's that right. a, every Asian dude needs a Persian friend as a as a as a as a guide. Yeah. Explain. Um, explain. Well, I you know, I, I think you, you, you were us? talking about the the politeness thing. So <laughs> yeah, so I think Asian guys take that politeness thing to like the extreme, and I, I have and and like you said, like sometimes you need to speak up. Um, you know, if you think if you think something's wrong, or in 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 the case of a lot of my friends, like you're trying to um, date a girl, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It's like it's like like the Asian thing is always like, okay, I I I gotta save face, I gotta save face, um, so. I'm going to sneak up on them mm-hmm. and I'm, and if I sneak up on them and they reject me, that's okay. Cause I didn't really make an effort. I right. wasn't really putting myself out there. Whereas like most of my Persian friends, like, look, just have a normal conversation, go up to them and have a normal conversation. If they turn you down, it's, it's not like the end of the world. You're not going to die from that. You know, the thing is we're fucked guys. You know why? Because we're only a few generations away of everyone before us getting arranged marriages, and that was it. And we're the first generation that has to have game. We don't know how to have game. (laughs) For God's sake, I don't come from a long line of people who have game. I come from a long line of people who are like, you are going to marry her. End of story. Next. (laughs) You know, these are new skills that we have to learn. Uh, So, you know, we can't be so ourselves. We have to do dramatic things like become, you know, comedians and writers or doctors <laughs> that's how, yeah that's we have to go to dramatic lengths to to do it i totally get it <laughs> to well, like in your book the, the souffle that yeah you cooked. yeah that's my um, special skill is cooking us uh, whipping up a souffle from scratch no i date you for that but um <laughs> the but so so getting back to the 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 part of the persian cooking how much of your cooking is persian cooking at this point when you're cooking at home like because it you mentioned this in the book it's not like something you can just usually whip up for most persian dishes it requires a lot of effort and planning i mean how often are you cooking persian food Never. I'm never cooking Persian food. And it's because it's fucking grandma food, man. It's like literally you have to have no other job other than to be able to stay home and make all this food. It's very, very difficult. Um, You know, once in a while I will make a Persian kebab because I do feel like I'll tell you, my go to if I'm making a fish kebab is to make it Persian style. And it's very simple to whip up. It's a marinade that I highly recommend. And I haven't found one that's any better or any simpler, but basically you take your fish, you cube it up. Uh, I know all the doctors listening are going to love this. You take your fish, you cube it up and uh, you make a marinade in a, put it in a Ziploc bag of chopped up onions, uh, a, a heaping teaspoon of turmeric, one clove of garlic chopped up, a couple squeezes of lime, salt, pepper, and the secret ingredient, which is saffron, which 
It's our go-to. It's our it's yeah. our cheat code. <laughs> yeah, totally cheat code. Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right. <laughs> BA, BA um, select start. <laughs> you take that. You uh, you know, you take your saffron threads, mortar and pestle with a a little bit of sugar just to break it up or salt, and you put it in there uh, and get it all nice and watery. Put your fish in there. Um, add some oil as well, just to give it a viscosity. Leave it there for an hour or overnight. It's the most delicious grilled fish that you can ever have, in my opinion. That's so that's good. probably, that's the majority of the Persian-ness that I do. Because the thing is, then when you go into the stews and the choresh, it's like, okay, I need fucking four days to chop vegetables, three yeah. days to braise the thing. Right, right. Uh, you know, I my serving size is going to be 20 people. I only have four friends coming over. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> that's that's true and in in persian cooking that's like that would be one of three dishes you know? right like, like the rice itself takes it takes days too yeah the, the rice it takes days and it takes like a, a swimming pool's worth of water well listen i think we need to we need to combat this cultural loss because basically we're we're losing that like people are here the, the americans here like we're not used to or equipped to or have the time to to do all that i have an idea i want to start a food truck we'll serve two things we'll serve that fish that you just described and weighs uh kubide which he does a pretty good job with and uh i already have a name for the for the food truck we'll call it tarof that'll be the name of our food truck i think gangbusters I and think we just we, can... do, we just don't accept any money from everyone. No, it's okay. Take <laughs> yeah. it. Take it. It's, it's love. I don't. I don't tower off with most of my friends, with the exception of the way anymore. Like my American friends, because they just like it does. Yeah, I, I've lost too no. much money. You can't they fuck can't them. Do yeah, you can't no. That's I, I. I have a word. It's called tarof's gone wrong. My brother and I. <laughs> Well, no, any white people, you cannot tar off with them. You have to split the bill. You have to have accounts. Because if you're just like, let me take care of it. They're like, great. This great. Is amazing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> For our listeners who don't know. They're like, let me order more. We, we've talked about tar off before, but tar off is like this cultural like thing in Persian culture where it's like some people describe it as being fake. I don't. I, I Honestly, what no. it is, it's like politeness to the point of rudeness. Like Wayne and I will get into physical altercations over a bill. Like when the bill comes, he will sneak off sometimes to try and pay it. But then I've already got to it first to the waiter to give them my credit card. And then it's like a whole it thing. It actually makes the meal actually very stressful because I'm halfway into it. I'm thinking about how to uh, how to get them. You know what, though? I think the alternative, I'm going to make a case that it makes it less stressful because the alternative is so I have my Persian friends that I can I can play this game with yeah. and I never have a thing in my mind ever of they're cheap they're trying to stiff me mm. and and trust me I I've lost all account of who has paid more who has paid less just because I will literally try my hardest to pay they will literally try their hardest to pay and it's almost like we know we have each other's back yeah. there's something oh, kind of yeah. kind of poetic about it whereas <laughs> There, I have friends who are like, who are my, you know, who don't play the Tarof game where I'm like, man, is this fucker going to even try to pick up the bill this time? Because he, <laughs> he hasn't picked up the bill the last three times. Does he not care? Does he not give a fuck? Like, yeah, fuck this that, guy. That, that makes and it I'm much worse. In my head, I'm like, I hate this person. Bro. Isn't it funny how quickly it changes? It goes so quick for me being like, I have to pay this bill. I have to cover this person's meal to being like, what the fuck, man? Why will this person pay? <laughs> 
dude, it's just like, you just know, it's like, but there's something so lovely about knowing that, like my, you know, Amir K, the comedian? Yeah, yeah. Okay, Amir is a great friend of mine. And we are like, we always pay for each other. I have no idea what the accounting is, but if we're going out, I just, if I'm taking him to one of my places, I'm going to pay for him. If you take me fishing, he's going to pay for the boat. Like, it's just, there's something like, so much more sibling-like than it yeah, is. Yeah, it's like family. Yeah, there's something way more familiar than like, than like. okay, it's time for us to open our Excel spreadsheet and see <laughs> you know, <laughs> whose turn it is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of good things about our culture. Let me... But, but I do think that Persian food is one of the most misunderstood, uh, f- you know, food cultures in America. And so hopefully, you know, my chapter can can enlighten some oh, people sure. on it. Um, yeah, but, I don't... I don't run into a lot of Americans where they try it. I've actually never run into an American who's tried it and hasn't liked it. I mean, it's familiar enough, like where it's not totally shocking, but different enough of a flavor profile that it it will be interesting to most of them. And then a lot of it's like it's <clears throat> seductive. At first, it seems pretty simple. Like even kubide seems like just ground beef and and lamb. What's how could that? How hard could that be? But right. you start to get into the nuances of people who make it really well and know how to do it. Like, I mean, you're you're in L.A., right? What's the best place there? It's probably Rafi's, right? In Glendale. Oh, yeah. Rafi's. Actually, the best place is in, a- in L.A. is called a- is a place called Dana Dutes motherfucking house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dude, but here's, here's what happens. Uh, every now and then I'll talk to somebody. I'll be like, they have like a cultural background. I'll be like, oh, that's great. Your your uh, your Thai. Where's the best Thai food? They'll be like my house. I'm like, that doesn't help me. Right. I can't like drop into your house at the right. end, like without a moment's notice and like ask you to make me food. Like I need like a place. Where is the best? And I'm sure your kubide is fantastic. But my where... kubide is great. Um, the best. Although the funny thing is, if we're gonna have like a, I don't know if you guys want to pontificate over kubide for on a yes. medical podcast for a little I, bit. This podcast can talk about whatever the fuck we want to talk about. Kubide <laughs> is what I want to talk about. So the interesting thing about kubide is that traditionally in Iran, kubide is 100 percent lamb. Mm-hmm. And it's come to America and it's become Americanified. So it's beef, baby, because America right. and dishes like Fesinjun, which is a uh, a stew of uh, um, grounded up walnuts, pomegranate, molasses, um, onions, turmeric is typically typically the sweet and sour base for duck. You're supposed to basically uh braise duck legs in it like a mm-hmm. like a confit almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in America, we do it with chicken. So we've Americanized yeah. a lot of these Persian dishes. Right. Um, however, I will say, with for me, when it comes to Kubide uh, and in in LA, my favorite place, um, in my opinion, and I know there's going to be shots fired here, the best Kubide is at a kosher place called Faraj uh-huh. on, on Pico. Um, I think their Kubide is the best. And I, um, you know... I don't know. I went to Rafi's recently. I liked it. It's funny. I went with Mr. Taster. I don't know if you know who that guy is. Mr. Taster is the biggest Persian food influencer in the world. He's got like 2.3 million followers on Instagram. He's like the he's like the Persian Guy Fieri, basically. And he was in L.A. and we went to a bunch of restaurants together and we went on a little kebab crawl. and They were all fine. But I don't know. I feel like if it's not if it's. If it doesn't have at least a little bit of lamb in it, it's missing out on I what agree. Kubide is supposed to be. I agree, actually. And uh, you talk about the food of life, which is like the super famous like book that all like Persian people grew up like reading as a cookbook. Um, 
that same author, she has a uh, new cookbook out called June, which is a lot more like Americanified. And and that's for the first time, you know, she talks about mixing ground beef and lamb. She's trying to like appeal a lot. Actually, the interesting thing about Persian food and in that book, June also is how well it can also you know be applied for people who are vegan or vegetarian. It's not that hard to do vegan Persian food, you know, no. you, you do the stews, you just cut out that meat, you put in more beans or whatever, and, and it works. Yeah. And actually all the stews in Persian cuisine, none of them have a beef stock or a chicken stock base. It's all water and a shit ton of herbs, basically. Yeah. Um, whenever I explain Persian food to people, I say, imagine Indian food, substitute spice for herbs. That's Persian food. It's yeah. a pretty base way of saying it. And and like you're saying, like an Indian food, very vegetarian friendly cuisine. So, yeah, um, very vegetarian friendly. Also, um, not a lot doesn't like weigh you down as much. Not a lot of butters or creams going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's really healthy. I mean, it's healthy eating, but it's definitely not like it's not like, you know, how a lot of cultures, uh, their food culture is like is like peasant food. Right. You know, like Italian no. right. Italian food is like, hey, this village had one onion for the whole year. So we have to <laughs> we have to make that one onion stretch. And they have like 30 different awesome pasta dishes with this fucking one onion. And Persian food isn't like that because we, you know, we were the first uh, we were the first yeah. people to rule the world. So it's like very palatial yeah. right. kind of cooking. That's also kind of our problem now. Why it doesn't have the same exposure that like Chinese food, Indian food has, because there's like no, it's changing now. I was talking about this with Mazubrani. He's like, for the most part, Persian restaurants are like nice. They're all high end. You know, you don't have like high end and low end like you do with most other cultures. So it's like, we need to have more like, you know, in, in Berkeley, for example, there's a place called Bongo Burger, where they serve like a, something called a Persian burger. And they have some like Persian dishes. And there's like low end stuff occasionally. But for the most part, we don't have a lot of that. Like it would be it would be good to have more options. Thus, again, food truck. Yeah, I'm with you. The Tarof truck. <laughs> tarof truck, exactly. I'm sure we, we could do like some sort of Tarof tacos or something and make it like we could do that if we wanted to. Like <laughs> somehow make like the crispy, like make the tadik like the, then just fold up the tadik and put like a piece of kubida in there and call it like a taco, kubida taco. Hey man, hello sharks. Hey, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, okay, last question. And then we'll let you go. Yeah. Uh, why not just become a chef? Um, you know, I interned at the Spotted Pig, which is a Michelin-starred restaurant in New York City for three summers. And if that taught me one thing, it taught me that I would never want to be a chef. Being a chef is such a difficult job, thankless. You're, and also you're behind the scenes. I want to get the laughs. I, I am so egomaniacal that I am narcissistic. I need to know right away that people are enjoying my work. And when you're a chef, you're in the back. You can't see anyone's faces when they're enjoying your food. Um, you know, it doesn't have that same uh, satisfaction. But I mean, in all seriousness, being a chef is, or a professional chef is just super difficult uh, really does not make a lot of money, even at some of the higher end places. Um, it's kind of a thankless job. I mean, I know that now it's kind of seen as a cool job because you have these rock star chefs that have like food shows and whatnot. I would much rather just be a chef at home and then, uh, you know, make money by, by making dick jokes. Yeah. That's a good gig. Keep it, man. Well, thank you so much. Again, honestly, the book is really entertaining. There were, I don't do this very often. I laugh out loud 
like a literal laugh out loud, like not an LOL, but I laughed out loud. And it's super heartfelt and fun. And I highly recommend it to everyone. Can you tell people where, just do all your plugs. Tell yeah, well, plugs. first of all, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And uh, for all you listeners, uh, it was it was really gratifying for me because I made these two doctors wait 10 minutes before I came into the Zoom room. Finally, I made the doctors wait, okay? <laughs> uh, it felt great. Um, but yeah, you can find my book basically anywhere you find books. It's called Undercooked. There's an audio book, which I read myself um, as well. And you can find all my stuff. Uh, all my socials are at Stand Up Dan. Um, and I just started a new show on YouTube uh, called uh, The Vintage Roast, which uh, you can just search uh, under The Vintage Roast, which is me and my friend Jessica look at old vintage food shows and just mm. roast them, basically. Oh, oh, oh nice. that sounds awesome. It's oh, so yeah, fun. I'm absolutely going to check that oh, out. Oh, yeah. It's like Julia Child and like <laughs> Emerald and like all these great shows. Um, yeah. So and then my podcast is Green Eggs and Dan, where I interview uh, celebrities and it's all based off of a picture of the inside of their fridge. So that's a uh, but but yeah, I, I thank you for reaching out for the book. It's the most gratifying thing I've ever done in my career, the hardest thing I've ever done in my career. And I'm really, really happy that it resonated with you guys. Oh, yeah, man. Oh, yeah, great. for sure. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it. No Tarov. No Tarov. No, 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 no. No, Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank you. No, the pleasure was mine. The pleasure was mine. The pleasure was mine. <laughs> I'm just gonna fade this part out. So yeah. People think we did this for like an hour. <laughs> and this is my uh, my best friend. I'm not his best friend, but he's my best friend. Way. <laughs> this podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.